Well, good morning, everyone. I am um, feeling a little nervous because I'm about to take a risk. And I'm going to tell you a story that I hope you relate to. But if you don't relate to it, don't tell me because then I'll even feel, feel more awkward. Um, when I, so when I was in high school, I was in band. Band, I played clarinet, and um, that means that every, every year, every semester of my high school career, first hour, I went to band class, and my sophomore year, something important happened in band class. Um, I, so where I sat, kind of where the clarinets were, I kind of looked up across the rest of the band to the baritone section, where I laid eyes on a floppy, like the perfect 90s floppy hair, blonde, <laughs> boy who I, for the life of me, cannot remember his name. <laughs> I have tried all week to remember what this kid's name was, and I cannot, and he was a senior, and he was cool, and he wore the, the like, letter jacket, like the letterman's jacket, and I, like, desperately wanted to get to know him, right? So I hatched all these teeny tiny plans. Like, I would come to band class late, so I could, like, walk past him behind there, and, like, I don't know what I was thinking. Like, maybe he would, like, be like, oh, hello, who are you? Never happened. Then I found out where his second period class was, and I like followed him. <laughs> and I thought maybe, you know, we can accidentally bump into each other in the hall. I don't know. I learned when his lunch period was, and then there was the fateful day in second semester when I discovered that my brother was in a class with him. And I went to my brother, and I'm like, I, I got out the courage, like, you have to help me meet fill in the blank, I don't remember his name. And my brother was a hard no, like not even willing to consider the possibility. <laughs> like he was just like, no, I'm not going to do that for you. Worst wingman ever. So I did what every, what every 15-year-old girl in high school does. Do you know what I did? Nothing. <laughs> I did nothing. I spent the entire year every morning, weekday morning, staring across the band at the boy I thought was the cutest person in the world, and I never spoke a word to him. Do you relate to this? Please tell me it's not just me. <laughs> like, please, please, please tell me. Like, you've had that feeling where you're like, oh gosh, I just really want to get to know someone. I really want to, like, you know, get to know them, and I can't do anything about it. Um, there's, there's something similar, a very small nugget of similarity between that feeling that I had and, and, and think what we're going to notice that the feeling that Jesus has about us. The difference is Jocelyn didn't do anything about it. Um, the good news is that Jesus could do something about it. Jesus had something he could do. And so I'm going to encourage you, grab your Bible, hopefully you brought it with you. If you didn't, there's one in the pew in front of you. The words will also be on the screen. We're in John 17. It's the third uh, Sunday of a three-week series in which we're exploring this prayer of Jesus, sometimes called the prayer of consecration or the high priestly prayer that Jesus prays on the night of his arrest in the presence of his disciples. And so we've been looking at the three pieces of this prayer. Two weeks ago, we saw that the beginning of the prayer, Jesus prays for himself, that God would glorify him. The next part of the prayer, Jesus prays for his disciples, so the 11 who were with him, and he prays that God would keep them for the ministry and the mission that he has designed for them. And now we're on the last part of this prayer, and Jesus is praying, surprise, for us. He's praying for those who belong to him. We'll talk more about this in a minute. We call those who belong to him the church. So this is a prayer for all believers, prayer for everyone who will, who will know Jesus. And so don't we want to hear what Jesus might say to us, because he's He's praying for us. And so let's read this passage together. This is John 17. We're going to begin in verse 20. Here's what the word says. Jesus prayed. I do not ask for these only, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. God, I do ask that you give us eyes to see your truth, ears to hear it, and hearts to follow it and trust it, that your spirit would be working amongst us, that we would know how, great, uh, how greatly you love us and want to be with us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, to get a hold of this um, passage, we're gonna just look at three things. We're gonna look at the characters, so who's doing the speaking and listening and the subject of the prayer. Then we're gonna look at the content of the prayer. What is Jesus actually asking for? So the character's content, and then we're gonna see the context. How does, Jesus choo- or how does God choose to answer Jesus' prayer? So the characters, the content, and the context. Let's start with the characters. Let's just go over this really quick. We've been talking about it a lot, but the speaker here is Jesus himself on the night of his betrayal and arrest. The first way that Jesus describes himself, the speaker of this prayer, is found there in verse 20 and 21 where he says that I am one with you, Father, that the Father is in him and he is in the Father. We've been speaking a lot about this, right? We've been speaking a lot about what it means for the Father and the Son and the Spirit to be one, to be a trinity. For Jesus to speak to the Father is for him to speak to um, God himself, but also the God of which he is a part. To speak to the Father for him means there is no division of nature, no division of will or purpose or desire or authority. There is no meaningful division between the Father and the Son that can be spoken of in terms of purpose or design or will. Like when he's speaking to the Father, he is speaking what God desires as well. And so here we know, we see once again this picture of the Trinity, this picture of three people united in one purpose and desire, in one substance, in one nature, and yet three distinct persons. And yes, it's a mystery. I can't explain it. You can't explain it. There are no good metaphors for it, but we confess that it is true. But also notice that the speaker of the prayer describes himself this way down in verse 24. He says that he is the one who is loved by the Father before the foundation of the world. He is loved by the Father before the foundation of the world. So he is the loved one. He is, he is God himself, but he is the beloved of God. And so this is important because we hear foundation of the world and we kind of like, what does that phrase mean? Well, in, the, in their conception, it meant before anything existed. 
The foundational understanding of who Jesus is, the speaker of this prayer, of who he is, the foundational understanding is that he was in a loving relationship with the Father and the Spirit. What is most foundational to who they are is the bond of love that exists between them. And so yes, God is powerful. Yes, God made everything. But before anything was made and before any of his power was demonstrated, love was demonstrated. Jesus was loved before the foundation of the world, that love existed, a relationship of love and community was there before anything else was there. And so the one speaking is defined by his love and his belovedness. That's foundational to who he is, but also notice over and over, not even just in this section of the prayer, but throughout the whole chapter that he's been praying in verse 17, he continually refers to himself as the sent one, the one whom God has sent. And so Jesus is also saying as a speaker, he's saying, look, I have been sent by the Father to do a work. God has, has a message. I'm the messenger who's gone into the world to fulfill God's purposes. And so Jesus is presenting himself as God himself, the beloved one, the son that belongs to the Father who's been and sent to do a work, and now he's talking to the Father on our behalf. And so if he's the speaker, who's the hearer? Well, we also see that throughout this prayer that God is referred to as Father, which implies something really important, right? We've been talking about it. It implies that there's this familial relationship, that there's loving and giving and sharing and tenderness and compassion, that the relationship that exists between the first person of the Trinity, God, and the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, is one of a family, a fam- familial relationship, connection. And the Spirit comes in and they are, they are together and they are one as in, in, a, in a relationship of, of wanting the best for each other, of, of family and connectedness. But notice that the third time Jesus refers to the Father in this passage, down in verse 25, he refers to the Father as the righteous Father. So I have to admit, as I was studying this passage this week, I was ready. I was fully expecting, I was like, I made a little note, I need to go back and I'm going to go ahead and search and see where this um, phrase turns up in other parts of Scripture. And I totally thought I was going to bump into some Psalms or something where it's like, oh, righteous Father. And here's what I found. This is totally unique. In all of scripture, the only place in all of scripture where God is referred to as righteous father. And I thought, oh my goodness, that must be important. Here Jesus, the only place in all scripture that Jesus is addressing God as the righteous one. Well, we, we know what righteousness is, right? Righteousness is being in right standing. It's being just, it's being correct. It's, it's having your holiness in terms of your relationships set straight. And so when Jesus says you're the righteous father, he's referring to a characteristic of God, a character quality of God, that God is righteous, that God always does what is right and good and true because he is God. And so this is so important, friends, because what Jesus is about to ask, he's not asking God for a favor, He's not saying, hey God, just I need you to help me out here. Can you do a little something for me? He's saying, God, I need you to act in in accordance with who you are. For Jesus to refer to God as the righteous father, he's he's saying, I need you to act in accordance with your character and your promises. You are the righteous one. And so what I'm asking isn't, is, is going to be totally in accord with what is good and true and right for you to do. But what is he asking? Well, he's asking on behalf of his, the subjects of the prayer, our third kind of character we need to look at. The subjects of the prayer is just referred to as those, but there's kind of three ways in this passage Jesus describes who he's praying for or about, and they kind of create a composite picture of, of who Jesus is praying for. Look first at how he describes them in verse 20. 
He says this, I don't ask for these only. So there he's saying, I'm not only praying for the disciples who were there with him. He's saying, I'm not just praying for them, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. The first description of the subjects of the prayer are those who will believe through the testimony of the disciples, those who will put active, ongoing faith in the reality of who Jesus is because the word has come to them. But look at the second description that forms our picture. It's down in verse 24. And Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me. And so the second description of them is that they are, the people he's praying for, are given to Jesus by the Father. So the first description is is those who will believe. The the second thing that describes these people is that they are given by the Father, that somehow there's a choice that God is making to present these people to Jesus as a gift. There's something that God is doing, an initiating work of God that is choosing people to belong to Jesus. But then the third description is down in verse 25 where he says, righteous Father, even though the world doesn't know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. And so the third description is that they know who Jesus is. They know who Jesus really is, that he is the sent one, the Messiah, the one who's come to bring the message of salvation. And so these three things come together to describe the subjects and that they are those who will believe In Jesus, through the testimony of the disciples, they are those who are given to him as a gift from God, and they are those who believe this truth. What's the substance of what they believe is that who Jesus is. They don't just believe that Jesus has existed or that Jesus is a wise teacher or that Jesus is a good example. They believe he is the sent one, the Messiah, the one who's come, come to do God's work. And so we put those things together and we have this composite picture, friends, of what? Of you and I of people who will one day believe who Jesus is, actively put their faith in who Jesus is through the initiating initiating work of the Father and will believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. By the way, this is why John said he wrote his gospel. (laughs) He said he was writing this gospel so that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and by believing have life. So Jesus is praying for you, we, are the subjects of the prayer. Everyone who would come to faith in Jesus throughout all the ages and all the generations, this is who Jesus is praying for right now. But there's a fourth category of characters we just need to look at very quickly. It's that Jesus repeatedly throughout this section of the prayer, did you notice it, refers to a watching world. That there is a world out there, there are observers out there watching what happens in this interplay between the the speaker and the hearer and the subjects, and they're watching what happens among them, and they're making a decision about who Jesus is. And so we have these observers, the world that is watching. And so in the interplay of these kind of four characters, these four categories of characters, now we see Jesus present the substance of his prayer, the content of what he's asking. There's really two petitions in this prayer, there's two requests in this prayer, and there's kind of one thing that kind of tags along, so we're gonna look at three of them, but let's look specifically, if Jesus is gonna pray for us, let's see what he's asking God for. Well, he begins in verse 20 through 23, making this request, did you see it? He says he's praying for us who will believe, verse 21, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, 
so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Well, Jesus' first request is about oneness, about unity, and it's about a unity that exists as we are brought into, indwelt, that we are together with the Son and the Father through the work of the Spirit, that somehow that we are in God and he is in us. It's a unity that goes vertically first, that we might found to be found to be one with God, but then it's a unity that stretches out horizontally next, that we would be unified together and that it's based in love. So Jesus is asking God to provide a oneness between us and him. He's asking God to provide a, a oneness between us amongst us. And so the, the, other, the later New Testament writers are gonna talk about this a lot. They're gonna talk about how these natural divisions between human beings and between God and us is, is destroyed by, by Christ, is, is requested by Christ, and so, uh, or is, is brought on by Christ. And so in Colossians 1, you hear Paul say, like, it's a mystery that Christ is in you, that we are one with him, so we can't explain it. But then he says that what? He says that all these div natural divisions between human beings, right, so slave and Greek, right, Jew and, or sorry, slave and free, Jew and Greek, male and female are, are all one now where? In Christ. So that somehow there's an identification with Christ, a oneness and a no overlap, like a total overlap that summarizes what it means for us to be unified with him and with others. Now, let me help you guys out. Are you confused? If you're confused, you're in a good place, <laughs> right? Because like, what? Oneness, like what, what, like unity, one, I'm in them, they're in me, they're in us, they're in each other. Who's in where? Like what, we want kind of neat, like neat circles. If you were me, like my instincts, like let me draw circles. Who's in where? Like <laughs> what's happening? We're confused. It's confusing. The Bible calls it a mystery, and yet it is what Jesus is asking for. He has asking of some sort of shared experience between he and us and he and the Father and we and each other. We can understand kind of what he's saying, but I think what, we, what hangs us up is we realize that it's completely impossible. How can it be possible for us to be one? How can it be possible for us to be one with Jesus, for him to be in us and us to be in him? If you're like me, like, I don't, I, like how does that work? And we also know that the entire testimony of the Bible is that it's impossible. And the, the scripture is just a record of how humans have failed at this. Right, that at every juncture has God offered opportunities to maintain community with him, to maintain fellowship with him, to be one with him. Humans were constantly messing it up. So all the way from the garden to the flood to the golden calf, right, all the way forward to the divided kingdom and the exile, all of these places along the way, there were opportunities for humans to choose to, be, to, to do the things that it took to be in right relationship with God, and yet we were always messing it up. We were, we were throwing away the potential for unity with God. And not only that, all you have to do is read headlines today to say that unity amongst human beings is, is not non-existent. And not only amongst human beings, but in the church. And so we're like, Jesus, what, like, why would you ask God for this? It seems impossible. 
We have proven throughout all of human history that this oneness between us and you, it, we haven't gotten it, and we've proven all throughout history that the oneness amongst us is impossible. What are you doing? How could God possibly answer this prayer? It seems so far out of our grasp. And yet Jesus makes another request. This one gets me, he, in verse 24, he says, Father, I desire... And we could stop right there and we could preach a hundred sermons right on that phrase. But I want you to think about this. Throughout the, the Gospels, Jesus was teaching about how when a child asks a father for a gift, won't a father give good things? In its simplest phrasing, this is a son asking his father for his deepest desire. Father asking a son for his deepest desire. Do you see what the deep desire of Christ is here? He says, here's what I desire, that they also, so you, those who will believe in him, that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Before we go too fast past this, I really want you to think about it. That Jesus is praying <laughs> He's pleading with God. He's saying, Father, like, here's what I really, really desire. Here's what I want most of all. That these people who believe in me will be with me. I was talking to my new neighbor, and she has this really pretty dog that's a breed I can't remember, and I don't think I ever knew anyway. But she was describing the breed to me, and she goes, oh, we call them Velcro dogs which was a new phrase to me too. And apparently a Velcro dog is a dog that always just wants to be right by your side. <laughs> and she's like, this dog just is a Velcro dog. It just always wants to be right here with me. And she's describing how the dog is always hanging around them and isn't, isn't kind of up in their face, but just wants to be wherever they are. And I thought, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is what Jesus is praying. Right? Jesus wants us with him wherever he would be. And yet again, here we come into a request that just seems impossible. How can we be with him? I don't know where he is. Do, do you? I don't, I don't know where he is. As a matter of fact, Jesus had started this whole night, the, the scriptures, it records this whole night, we're told that Jesus begins by knowing, here's what the scripture says in John 13, it says, he, he knew that God had given him all things and that he had come from God and was returning to God. This is where Jesus is. All things belong to him, he is God himself, and yet here he is saying his deepest desire is that he would be with us. And again, we see that all of recorded human history is about our failure to embrace exactly this. The very beginning of the Bible, God came to dwell with his people, and yet just a couple pages in, we messed it up. And though God wanted to be with us, we made decisions and made choices out of pride and our own selfish desires and our own misunderstandings to separate ourselves from him. And so we we're cast out of God's presence, away from the garden, away from where we would be with him. And by the way, we're told that the door is shut behind us and is guarded by some warrior angels with some flaming swords. And so for Jesus to say, I want them to be with me, he's saying that something has got to be fixed because we aren't with him, the story of the Bible is that we are separated from him. The story of the Bible is that we can't be with him. 
There were all these barriers that our sinfulness and our brokenness created the ultimate barrier of death. And let's think about it. Isn't that the definition of kind of the human condition that the human experience for all of us ends with the ultimate separation of death? And I know that's grim, but think a moment of how radical Christ's request is here. He's saying, I want them to be with me. And so this must include the elimination of all things that would keep us from being with him. How could God answer this prayer? What's, what's gonna happen? How can he do this? Like the whole, the whole of history was how we aren't unified with God and we aren't unified with each other and, and by the way, we aren't with him and we don't know where he's going and we don't know how to be with him and every chance that we've had, we've squandered and we've lost and our hearts have gone astray. Jesus is really asking for a third thing in the content of his prayer. And he's asking that somehow if God answers these prayers for unity and connectedness and fellowship and a future with him, that somehow through that, the world will see and believe. He's constantly saying that if this happens, the world will see what's going on. The world will see that you have sent me. The world will see who I really am. You guys know that I grew up in Missouri. You guys know Missouri's nickname? It's the show me state. You guys know this? So I went on the, the Missouri Secretary of State's website and according to the Missouri Secretary of State, there's all kinds of apocryphal reasons. That's our like, motto, our nickname. But he did say it just refers to the stalwart and, um, and credulous nature of Missourians. <laughs> did you know I'm stalwart and credulous? <laughs> I will tell you that the most Missourians that I know, though, embrace this. They would say, no, like, we are kind of people, like, I, don't, I won't believe it till I see it kind of people. Like, it's not enough that you tell me, like, I need to see it. And so we need some proof and we need some evidence to believe that what you're saying is true. This is part of what's happening here. Jesus is saying there is a watching world who's looking for evidence of who he is. There's a watching world looking at us, looking for evidence that Jesus is the sent one, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is beloved of God. And they're watching and waiting and it's Jesus' desire that by seeing what happens with us and him, the world might believe. How could this possibly happen? Even the Gospel of John itself is a continual testimony how people just couldn't understand who Jesus was. That people were watching and they were blind and they couldn't see it and he was constantly doing these signs, John says, constantly trying to teach people about who he was and they just weren't getting it. They didn't see. So the substance of this prayer, listen friends, the substance of this prayer, Jesus has made these big requests that seem crazy. They seem impossible. How could God answer these? And so we have to talk about the context of the prayer. Do you remember how the prayer starts? We're told that Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven to address God. We're told that the first thing that he says in verse one, he says, Father, the hour has come. Father, the hour has come. Now, for some of us, that may mean I've got an appointment, I gotta go, right? For some of us, that may mean, oh, I got a schedule to keep, let's go. But the problem is this is a laden term in the book of John and really throughout scripture. Then when, when the Bible is talking about Jesus' hour has come or his hour had not yet come or he was waiting for the hour to come, it's always speaking very specifically of the cross, 
that the hour that Jesus was waiting for was his passion and his crucifixion. So the content is explained by its context. Jesus is for asking for some things that seem impossible. And yet we know what happens next. We have this very public prayer. Then we know they go to a garden where there's a private, unrecorded prayer. Jesus is betrayed and arrested. He's tried in front of religious and worldly authorities, and he's sentenced to death. As brutal as crucifixion is, it happened all the time in the Roman Empire. As terrible as it is to think that an innocent man died, it happens all the time. And yet the gospel writers and the church for 2,000 years and us here in this room, through the eyes of faith, believe that something more than just the death of Jesus is happening that night. Friends, the cross is the answer to Jesus' prayer. The cross is the answer to Jesus' prayer. What you think about this? If you get anything today, here's what it is. What Jesus wanted most, what Jesus wanted most, the substance of his prayer, the thing that he was asking for us to be with him and to be in the company of other believers forever, what Jesus wanted most, God grants through the suffering of the cross. How can, how can we be one with the Father? How can we be with him forever? How can the world see and know? Here's how they will see and know. Because Jesus Christ is lifted up on the cross. He's enthroned as king in his suffering. Because here's what happened on the cross. What happened on the cross is Jesus said, righteous father, I need you, I need you, we're gonna satisfy what your righteousness demands and I am going to die in their place. Those ones that I love, those ones that you've given me, the ones who will believe in me, I am going to die in their place so that righteousness can be satisfied. I'm going to give myself so that they can stand with me forever. And so all of a sudden, because Jesus goes in my place and in your place, oneness with God becomes possible because he decided to become one with me. Because he decided to take my sin and the things that separate me from him and to crucify them on the cross. So the righteous father can look and say, justice is satisfied. I'm acting in accordance with my character. I can now look on Jocelyn and those who belong to me. I can now look at them as if they have never sinned. And so how can I be with him forever? Because Jesus died and rose again. And now the hold of death, the, the hold that death would have over us, it doesn't have a hold on us anymore. Because we are one with Christ and he has risen from the grave. God has vindicated him by bringing him back to life. And now he brings you and I with him. And now as the world looks at us, and as the world looks at the cross, the world can believe something's happening there. Because God is righteous, he will grant Christ's request to make us one. He will grant Christ's request that we would be with him forever. Because Jesus has satisfied justice with his death 
He's declared us free of the blame of sin and has been vindicated by his resurrection that he brings us along into. And so now the things that separate us from God, there are no more. Our sin and our death have been crucified with Christ. There's something in there for us, you guys. That the way that God answered Jesus' prayer for what he most desired was his suffering. There's a lot to chew chew on. But I do want you to hear this. These prayers seemed impossible. But then Jesus gave himself for you. And now you can be with him forever. Jesus prayed, he still prays for you. Jesus desperately wants a relationship with you. He wants to be known. He wants you to know him. He loves you so much. My guess is that many of us in this room, we may sometimes feel unlovable. Kind of live in a culture that says you kind of have to earn love, right? You kind of have to make yourself worthy of love by like how you look or what you achieve or how successful you are. We're more used to that. But the love that Jesus demonstrates on the cross is the love that says, I want to be with you. And I am making a way. The simple truth of this prayer and its context is this. Jesus, friends, listen, Jesus could not imagine a future without you in it. He couldn't imagine a future without you in it. And we've said it before, uh, you know, there's a great quote from Tim Keller, I'll, I'll keep saying it, but it's just this, it's as if Jesus on the cross looks at you and I, and he says, I would rather die than not have you in my life. Yes, you. Yes, you. Jesus looks on you and all of your, all the things that you have in here, right, all those things that you think no one, if they really knew it about you, they wouldn't like you, all that stuff you hide that you're afraid of the future or what God is doing or you think maybe things are crumbling around you or you feel lonely and unknown and disconnected, all that stuff that you hold in you have just fear of the future and, and, and what's gonna happen and, and maybe you're unlovable and no one really knows you and Jesus looks right back at you and says, I would give my life to be with you. Because my deepest desire is that you will be with me where I am. Do you know there's not a single conditional statement in this prayer? In all of chapter 17, there's not a single place where Jesus goes, well, if this happens, if you want to do this, God, if you're thinking about it, Jesus is incredibly confident because he knows his desires and God's desires are the same that we would be with him. And so now we respond. And how do we respond to the love that God has poured out for us on the cross that we would be with him? We respond by trusting. We respond by following. And yes, we respond in worship. Would you pray with me? God, it's amazing to me to think that uh, these things that you prayed this last night of your life, you were thinking of me. 
You're thinking of my friends in this room who belong to you. That your eyes stretch to, to this place even now and you saw our faces and our names and you said, I want to be with them. That you looked across time and history and you saw all those who were being given to you. And you saw it as a joy and the deepest desire that you had to give your life that we would be with you forever. So if there are any in this room who do not know that saving love and that gift of the cross, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open their eyes to it today. And for those of us who have become casual about it or who, who just think we've heard it so much, would you, would you renew it in our hearts today? For those of us in this room who feel unlovable or unloved, would your Holy Spirit minister even right now and remind us of your great love for us? And would a watching world see and believe? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.